The reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapters 44 and 45. Here, God predicts the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. So we start at chapter 44 of the book of Isaiah, verse 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. Of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armor, and to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning these things to come. 
Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and create mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those of those tall surveyors, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other, there is no other God. Truly, you are God who has been hiding himself, the God of and Saviour of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together, but Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be presented. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Tim, so much for reading. Um, a long passage, a complicated passage. Um, a couple of people we asked to read today said no, um, and I don't blame you. So, Tim, thank you very much. Is that mic still on? 
Or is that down? The, the leader mic. Okay, in which case, yeah, maybe that's, that's, that's better, isn't it? Nice one. Thank you, Anna. What is God doing in the world? Um, more particularly, perhaps, how do you feel about our political leaders at the moment? How do you feel about things this side of the pond? How do you feel about things the other side of the pond? It's not a time, I would venture to say, when we are filled with joy um, with the leaders that we have. Now, that's not a political statement. I'm not a huge fan of the other guy, um, this side of the pond or the other side of the pond. And actually, I suspect there's never been a particular time in history when everyone thought their leader was great. We tend to lionize, we tend to love our heroes when they're dead. And I think that counts for our presidents, kings and prime ministers as well, and probably queens. Actually, we all, most people do love the queen. That's getting off topic. And of course, however bad things are here, it could be a lot worse, couldn't it? If we were in North Korea, then I think we'd have far more reason to complain about our leader. And so, what is God doing in the world? Well, we'll see on our passage today that even through these leaders that we have, even through the worst possible king or prime minister or president, God is still at work. As I say, it's a long and it's a complicated passage. We need God's help, so let's pray that he would help us as we look at this together. Father God, thank you for your word to us. And thank you for when your word shows us things that we would never know unless you told them to us. In fact, things that seem surprising. In fact, things that initially we may not like, but as is always the case, when we find out what you're really like, you are so much better than we thought. And so we pray that will be the case for us today as we see more of you, that we would love you more than we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Tim was reading, I don't know if you noticed a phrase that came up about five times in the passage. This is what the Lord says. And it makes sense. We've been looking a lot at uh, God versus idols over the last few weeks. And one of the big comparisons is idols don't speak, obviously, because they're made of wood or stone or metal, but God does speak. And so after weeks of Isaiah repeatedly mocking the idols for their inability to speak, this week we get, but this is what the Lord says. 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 The Lord does speak, and this is what he says. What then does he say? Well, these five things. Firstly, I am the only Lord, the one who creates, who commands, and will restore the one who creates, verse 24, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. That's verse 25. And the reason that God would turn the speech of the false prophets, of the diviners, of the wise men to nonsense is they think they can say what the future is, they make their predictions, and God says, no way and does something else entirely, making fools of their prophecy. He's also the one who creates, verse 24, I formed you in the womb, I am the maker of all things. I stretch out the heavens, I spread out the earth by myself. 
God says, I'm the creator, I'm the one who commands, and he's the one who restores. Verse 26, God says of Jerusalem, and remember Jerusalem at this time has been destroyed, and its people have been taken away in exile to Babylon, and God says, I say of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. I say of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them. But then we get really specific. Again, one of the things that God mocked the false prophets, the idol gods for, was their inability to tell the future. They couldn't speak at all, but in particular, they couldn't tell the future. And God says, I will raise up my servant, my shepherd, Cyrus, and he will accomplish all that I please. He, that is Cyrus, will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Well, who on earth is Cyrus? And what on earth does it mean that he is God's shepherd? Well, so our first one, God is the one God who creates, who commands, who restores. The second, this is what the Lord says, is this. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 45, I will save even through one who opposes me and offends you, my people. God says, I will save even through one who opposes me and offends you, my people. God says that Cyrus will be his shepherd. So is this some kind of new Israelite prophet, some kind of great king? No, Cyrus will be the king of Persia. And I say will be, because at the time when Cyrus is sorry, when Isaiah is writing, somewhere between 740 and 700 BC, at that time, Cyrus isn't even born yet. Cyrus would come to power in around 540 BC, 160 years later. That's like Abraham Lincoln in 1857 making a prediction that a man named Donald would ascend to the presidency. It's mad, isn't it? How on earth could anyone possibly know anything that far into the future? Well, of course, the only one who could is the God who knows the future because he controls the future. The one who is able to fulfill the predictions of his messengers because he is the one who brings them to pass, of whom it is properly said, history is his story. God is the one who writes it. Again and again through the book of Isaiah, we've seen this challenge thrown out to the idols. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. And every time they say nothing, but God here is doing, did do, has done what the false gods could not do, declare the end from the beginning. And I think the main message for God's people then, and for us now, is comfort. If God is able to predict the future, to know the future, because he controls the future, what a comfort for those who are his people. What a comfort for those who belong to him. What a comfort it would have been for the Israelites reading this in Babylon. Their captivity had been predicted long before by Isaiah, and their rescue is also predicted long before by Isaiah. And so what confidence this should give to us that our God knows the future because he controls the future. So this Cyrus guy, 
Will he be a just ruler, a gentle ruler, a kind ruler? Far from it. He will sweep across from the east, devastating all in his path until he defeats Babylon. But then when he takes over Babylon, he will send home the exiles to every nation from which they had come, including the Jews. But he will do so. This pagan king, worshipper of the god Ahura Mazda, forgive me if that's the wrong pronunciation, and yet God will help him, and he will storm across. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. This is talking about battles and sieges and the defeat of enemy kings and enemy armies. As we've said, is he a godly king? He's not a godly king. Not only did he worship this false god, Ahura Mazda, no god at all, but he rivaled the Babylonians in his cruelty towards those that he suppressed. One of the things that they did, particularly in the Persian Empire, was that he would impale his enemies on spikes while they were alive. That's about the least bad of the things that he did. I won't describe the rest. I'm actually reading a book at the moment which coincidentally this last week was going into detail um, about the things that they used to do to their prisoners and it wouldn't be decent uh, to read it out in church. But he was not a good man. And in fact Isaiah makes it clear Cyrus does not know the Lord. So this is verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, God says, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you, Cyrus, by name, and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me as there is no God, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. And so surely we're saying, why? Why would God choose to rescue his people through this pagan king, a bad man on any level of good or bad, and not simply through strengthening Judah or by some miraculous means as he brought his people out before in the Exodus? Well, verse 6 tells us why. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know, God says, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other God. God would use Cyrus, this pagan king, so that all people would know that God's power is not limited to working only through those who acknowledge him, nor is he simply a tribal God only able to work within the borders of his nation, as they believed was the case with many gods then. God is the Lord, there is no other God, no other besides him. The one God who knows the future because he controls the future. Which also means that God controls the present because the present is yesterday's future. Now, to say God knows the future because he controls the future is kind of sufficiently vague to be comforting, isn't it? But when we start to say that God controls the present, God is in charge of our world now, that's a touch more uncomfortable, isn't it? What does it mean to say that God is 
in control, or as the theologians like to say, that God is sovereign. Because it's an inescapable theme in Scripture, not just in Isaiah, but in everywhere. This is Daniel chapter 2. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. It is God who puts kings in position and takes them out of position. And it's even God who influences the decisions that kings and rulers make. Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Or Romans 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And the uncomfortable thing about that is, what about bad kings? Or what about the bad decisions that good kings make? And Isaiah is not quickly letting us off the hook here. If anything, he makes it worse. Verse 7, God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. The good things that happen in this world, yes, they come from God. I form the light, I bring prosperity, says God. But what are we to make of the other side of each of those verses? I form the light and I create disaster. I, I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, we haven't got time um, in the remaining 10 minutes uh, to explore all the implications and questions of this. One of the best talks I ever heard on this, um, Don Carson, it was about an hour and a half, followed up with 45 minutes of Q&A. So if you're really up for it, we can go for that, but I suspect that wouldn't tie in with people's lunch. However, if anyone wants to talk more about this or go into it in more depth, do say, very happy to do so, even if that was like a one-off session or something. And I'm just moving past a whole page of my notes for the sake of time because we just haven't got time to go into it. But here's the thing I want to say. Initially, and I don't know what your emotional reaction to this has been as we've been speaking, initially it sounds unattractive. It sounds unappealing to think that, that God is actually in charge of this world and of, of what goes well and of what doesn't go well. Well, firstly and most crucially, this is what the Bible teaches. And as Christians, we don't decide what we believe by whether or not we like an idea. We decide what we believe by whether or not that's what God says. And so if this is what God says, then we need to wrestle with it and work with it, but not just say, I don't like it, therefore I won't believe it. And here's the thing, ultimately, and I resisted this idea hugely when I first came across it, but ultimately, there is much more comfort believing that God is sovereign, believing that God is in control, than believing that actually this world is just like a runaway school bus, no one at the wheel, ultimately heading towards disaster. No greater meaning or purpose to the suffering in our lives. We're all just masters of our own fate, and God looks on at us pathetically, wringing his hands, wishing he could do something, giving us well wishes from his armchair in heaven, but actually not able to act. Or, as the Bible teaches, God is at the wheel. And he's taking us sometimes down a difficult road, a difficult path, one we don't understand, one that we think, why would, why would it ever be a good idea for 
that king, that president, Cyrus, Kim Jong-un. But we trust that, as always, God is working things out for our good, for the good of this world, to fulfill his ultimate plan. A new world of no more suffering or mourning or pain or death. And people often point out that even Christians who resist this idea of God being sovereign instantly re-believe it when they're on their knees praying. Because if God isn't in charge, if God isn't able to depose a king and raise a king up, get rid of a president, raise up a president, then why do we pray? There's no point praying if God isn't in control. But he is. And so it is worth praying. And it is ultimately a comfort to know our God is in charge. We follow a God who knows the future because he controls the future as he controls the present. Now, however we feel about that, as I say, we want to be careful of getting to a place where we can say, all right, I can see that that's what the Bible teaches, but God shouldn't do it that way. It is immoral of him to do it that way. It's wrong for him to do it that way. And we get a warning in verse 9, Isaiah 45, verse 9, woe to those who quarrel with their maker. That is, to turn to God and say, you shouldn't do it like that. You shouldn't save like that, as Isaiah's people um, might well have been saying in their day, you shouldn't be saving through someone terrible like Cyrus. He's an awful king. You shouldn't be doing it that way. And God says, in the third, this is what the Lord says, he effectively says to us, who are you to think that you would be a better God than God. Who are you, O humans, to think that you would be a better God than God? God doesn't answer those who criticize his salvation plan by using complex philosophy, but with a reminder of who he is and what he's done. This is what the Lord says. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts, 100 billion stars, and God created all of them. God says, first and foremost, I have the right as creator to do as I please with my creation, just as a potter has the right to form whatever he wishes with the clay on the potter's wheel. And our culture and it's one of our cultural idols, our culture resists against this. We worship self-determination. I have the right to define who I am. I have the right to decide what is good. I have the right to decide what is wrong. I alone am the master of my fate. But we're not. God made us. And not only does he know the best way to run his creation, he has a right to do it as he pleases. And if God did create this world, create this universe, lay out every star in the sky, then he is far, far wiser than us. And it is not therefore unreasonable to conclude that God may have reasons for running this world the way he is that we aren't able to understand right now because we aren't God. That is not an unreasonable supposition to make. If God is big and powerful enough for us to be annoyed at him for the way things are, 
then he's also big and powerful and wise enough to have reasons for doing things his way that we aren't able yet to understand. Romans chapter 9, verse 20, after lots of argumentation back and forth, says ultimately, who are we to answer back to God? And so God concludes, I will rescue in my way. Verse 13, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his way straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Well, the last two, this is what the Lord says more briefly. Fourthly, the world will see that I am the only Lord when I save my people. At the moment, there are many rival gods to God, but a day is coming when there will be no more questioning. Even those who oppose God, who worshipped other gods, will recognize the truth, come to his people and say, verse 14, surely God is with you and there is no other. There is no other God. Now, that could be a logical end to the story. Israel saved, the nation's acknowledging God, but actually God says that is not enough because I am the creator of all peoples, not just Israel. And so, fifthly and lastly, this is what the Lord says. I created all peoples, so come to me from the ends of the earth and be saved. Verse 18, this is what the Lord says who created the heavens. This is what the Lord says who fashioned and made the earth. He didn't create it to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. And so he loves each and every person he has made. And therefore, verse 20, gather together and come. Assemble you fugitives of the nations. Verse 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. So turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The salvation that God offers is not an exclusive salvation. It is only for those who put their trust in Christ, but it is for anyone who puts their trust in Christ, whatever their former religion. There is only one God. The idols of wood and stone were not gods. The idols of the nations were not gods. The gods of Hinduism, Sikhism, Islam are not gods. There is only one God to whom we can turn for salvation. The one God who creates, who commands, and who will restore. But all can turn to him. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Most here will have turned to God, um, and we have, many of us, put our trust in Christ. We'd call ourselves Christians, and if so, well then from this passage, what comfort, what comfort to know that we belong to the one who has our future in his hands. He knows our futures, each and every one of us individually, because he controls our future. Through everything that we've been going through, through everything that we will go through, whatever we face in our lives. God doesn't just have vague, warm sentiments towards us. He is powerful, powerful to work in our world. God said he would raise up Cyrus and restore Jerusalem, and he did. God said he would raise up Jesus, and that Jesus would die and then rise again, and he did. And so what confidence this gives us. Idols can't control the future. Politicians can't control the future. God can. 
And so when God says that He will be with us, that He will guard us, that He will guide us, He will. And when God says He will return and take His children home to a new Jerusalem, no more mourning or crying or suffering and pain, He will. We can be confident that He will do it. And so God weaves together the strands of the tapestry of history of which we now can only see the back. But on that day when Jesus returns, we will see the front. We will see the beauty of what God has been weaving together. And on that day, this word, this final word of our passage, which God has spoken, will come to pass. Verse 23, before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel and those who put their trust in Christ, our descendants of Israel, will find their deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. What a great salvation. Let's pray. Father God, you are beyond our understanding. There are things that we struggle with. If you are good, how is there so much evil in the world? We don't know. But we know that you are good. We know that you are in control. And so, Father, we thank you that you hold our lives in your hands, that as you work in this world, you are bringing us to that great future world. No more suffering or mourning or crying nor pain. No more sickness, no more death. And so we pray, Father, comfort, comfort and guide and lead each one of us. And may we increasingly evermore put our trust in you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.